Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week, I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Michigan State University professor Baronda Montgomery, where I ask her, are plants literal geniuses? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited for this episode because I have been wanting to learn about trees for so long. Without any further ado, welcome to the show, Professor Baronda Montgomery, who is a molecular and biology and microbiology and molecular genetics at Michigan State University professor, the resume. <laughs> and welcome. Thank you so very much. I think my mom is most excited about the resume, but thanks a lot. I mean, I can see why you have like a literal and and you are a professor of so many different things in your title that is really, I have to say, coming in handy to serve our ulterior motive and question of the episode. Now, I have two like two pronged question into this. Mm-hmm. I was minding my own business in February of 2020. I was in New Zealand on comedy tour. Mm-hmm. And I know it's weird. It's like it was like six weeks before everything shut down. So it was still like. The last, the last time I've ever been on a plane. Um, but anyway, so these trees in New Zealand, like the second I landed and looked at the trees, I was like, these trees are like really interesting and different than any tree I've ever seen like around home. Like the roots were like kind of like skinny and tall, but like outside the ground. Yes. And they were like these interesting like wedgy sort of shapes that I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. And I just could not get enough of the trees. Then meanwhile, like... Two months later, the world shut down. Coronavirus like shut down, you know, North America and the United States. And then my now husband taught me how to garden and we got really into mm. gardening. Yes. So between those two things, I was like, I have been a nightmare millennial just running around the world, not realizing that nature was so cool. And then I realized I had all these questions. So thank yes. you so much for being here. Well, I'm really excited about being here. Congratulations on the husband part. And how cool that he's teaching you about gardening. That's a keeper for sure. Uh, he, <laughs> thank you. And you have a new book, which is called Lessons from Plants, which is published by Harvard University Press. Not too shabby. I'm thank obsessed. You. Again, title. Um, but yes, I mean, you're just a perfect person to talk to about this. So I think my first question is, why are New Zealand trees so different than American trees? Yeah. So it's really it's one of the cool parts about plants is that because they're in different environments, they have different behaviors and different adaptations. And unlike humans that also adapt to their local environments, we can see the adaptations that plants make. So Mm -hmm. you saw these roots that are sometimes called brace roots uh, because they're helping brace the plant because of the kind of either stability of lack or stability of the ground that they're growing on. Ah. Okay, yes. Let's zoom out because it's important to zoom out because it's such an, like a specific question I just asked. What is literally a plant? So plants, they're super cool beings, first of all, but more technically, they are multicellular organisms that are capable of making their own food. So from very simple compounds, water, carbon dioxide, and sunlight, they can convert that into sugars. And in the process, they produce oxygen. So they are by nature, organisms that are, it's called oxygenic photosynthesis. So using light to make sugar and in the process producing oxygen. Okay, I'm obsessed with that story. It kind of reminds me of that part in um, uh, 
Philly Madison when he's like chlorophyll, more like yes. chlorophyll. And it's like rude, not true. <laughs> but doesn't chlorophyll have something to do with that whole process? Absolutely. So that's the kind of characteristic nature of plants that we see them as green. And the green is is the chlorophyll. So chlorophyll is the uh, compound that uses sunlight um, to make uh, sugars. But it's the green chlorophyll that's typical of plants. What is the syrup? What is the syrup that comes out of maple trees? Oh, so this is this is a, a compound. It's a liquid that flows from one part of the plant to the other. So it's where the leaves of the plants are what are responsible for producing sugars through photosynthesis. But then other parts of the plants need access to that sugar for energy. And so plants have a, uh, it's a sap or phloem where the sugars get loaded into this at the leaves and then it gets transported through the plant so that it can go all the way to the roots so that they have sugar and all compounds between. And then humans and other organisms come along and realize that that sap with sugar is there. And then we can tap into the plant and get it to flow out and use it for other purposes. So if we were going to like compare that to our own systems, is it like the sugar, like it's photosynthesizing the leaf and then it like goes like back into the branches and it's almost like the veins or something? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So it's it's the transport system for the sugar throughout the plant so that all parts of the plant that need access to it can get access to it. So if we tap into trees and drink their sap or like use their sap or whatever, like in maple trees, it doesn't kill the tree. No, it doesn't. Trees that, you know, plants are really adaptable. And and basically, as part of that sugar is being drawn off, they recognize that they need to make more. And so they can just adjust and upregulate their ability to make sugar. We could draw it off so fast that they can't make that adjustment. But typically, people who do it kind of have a sense of how to do it without killing or damaging the plant beyond. Oh, my God. Okay, I'm obsessed with that. Okay, so now... Now I can go back to my normal line of questioning because <laughs> I I just I'm so sorry. Follow so the better. excitement. <laughs> yes, I, I, had to, I had to go with it. So, what are the like the different categories of plants? Yeah, so there are many different kinds of plants. So there are herbaceous plants that basically just produce leaves. You know, we think about the basil and things that we use in our kitchens. Um, there are seed producing plants. Uh, there are uh, woody plants and bushes like trees. And they're one of my favorite category of plants are annual wildflowers. So these are usually very small plants that pop up in a season when they have the opportunity. They come up very bright and flowery and then they, um, you know, life goes on. But it's just a kind of one season, put it all out there and move on. Oh my gosh, I actually come to think of it. I didn't just become obsessed with plants in my 31st year. I actually went through a wildflower obsessed phase when I was like seven and my mm-hmm. mom and I would drive around and I would like, we'd pull over when we saw cool wildflowers and yes. I would like make little bouquets. I was obsessed. Oh. I love that you love those too. Yes. What's the difference between annuals and perennials? So annual plants are plants that basically have their entire life cycle from seed to flowering and their life is over in one year. Perennials come back year after year. And so that's the main difference. So then like after a year though, because so will they, but they'll make seeds and then like, will it kind of come back the next year, even if you don't plant it? Cause the seeds might sprinkle themselves yeah, right the, there. Exactly. So sometimes you'll see the offspring of the same annual plant come back, but that's a dif- different plant. Whereas the perennial, it's the same individual that's making flowers each year. Yes, that makes sense. Yes. Okay, uh, okay. Now, okay. So what are some things that like we think are plants, but maybe like don't actually qualify as a plant? I think the most common ones would be some of the things that are uh, aquatic. And so a lot of uh, 
you know, people who do diving and things like that, they will see aquatic plants, like some things that are actually uh, sea marine sponges. And they think that they're aquatic plants, but those are actually animals. Um, sea marine sponges are animals classified biologically as animals. Interest. <laughs> okay, wait, so then what about um ferns? Yeah, so ferns are, so this is the interesting thing. It depends on where you were in kind of biological history. Very early in biological history, there were only two classes. There were animals and plants. And so at mm. that time, there were lots of things like cyanobacteria that are actually photosynthetic bacteria or ferns or other fungi that were considered plants just because they were non-animal. But as we've become, um, you know, have more knowledge about those cyanobacteria, green algae are non-plants that they still carry out photosynthesis. Oh my God, wait. So will you say that one more time? What you're really saying is for someone who doesn't understand science words is, is that as we've gotten like later, like as we like develop more bio, like by biological understanding, like, are you saying like that, like the E3 live that you would take shots of at the like, at the health food bar, like that little like chlorophyll like shots, like that's not really a plant. A lot of times, no, a lot of times those may come from cyanobacteria, which are actually bacteria. Um, but and I think it's just that, you know, as we became to know more, we started out classing, classifying anything that's not an animal as a plant. And then we recognized that there are distinctions within that. Some of those things were actually bacteria. Some of them, I think also we get um, very much, uh, we have a bias towards thinking of seed plants as plants, as opposed to other things that are plants that don't produce seeds. And so it's just that as we've learned more, what gets classified biologically as a plant has divided that some. What's a thing that doesn't produce seeds? Um, so actually, ferns don't technically produce seeds. They produce spores, uh, which is a distinction yes. from a seed. Um, and, and there are other plants that actually reproduce vegetatively. Um, and so they sometimes can produce seeds, but most of the time they actually, and vegetatively means if you've ever had a house plant where you break off a piece of it and you get it in a, another container and produce an entire new plant, plants can reproduce in that way. And that's vegetative reproduction. That's just producing from the tissue that you have there, but not going through the actual seed process and germination. I think we've done that with grass. Yes. At our house. Yes. Like different grasses. Yes, absolutely. Oh my God, that's amazing. I love that story. Okay, so wait, so then what's, what's some fun, what's fungi? Is it fungi or fungi? So some people say fungi, some people say fungi. It just, you know, there are different combinations, but that's a distinct class of, of um, the most common one that people are aware of are mushrooms. So mushrooms are a type of fungi. And these are largely non-photosynthetic tissues that um, they feed off of other tissues. So sometimes they feed off of decomposing leaves or other organic compounds that you find. And so they're distinct because they don't produce their own energy through the process of photosynthesis. Oh yeah, because like they have to live off someone else. So yes. they are not a plant. Yes, yes. Yes. Okay, so what are some of the ways that plants like, because I think sometimes it, it, it's like that movie Notting Hill with Julia Roberts mm -hmm. when that one lady at the dinner table is like, oh, I'm a fruititarian. I don't eat fruit yes. and vegetables because they like, <laughs> but like <laughs> I, that joke's always stuck with me. Uh -huh. But what are some of the ways that plants do actively react to their environment? So in so many ways, and I think that's what's fascinating about them to me. That's kept me fascinated with them for so many years. So plants 
Uh, one of the reasons they react to so many different things in the environment is that they spend their entire life in the same place, right? And so it's not like humans where if you don't like where you live anymore, you can move. Or I'm a Southern belle. I'm sure you couldn't tell just from, you know, <laughs> this short interaction. But I grew up in Arkansas and every summer when it was hot and humid, you want to leave, right? Now I'm in Michigan and we have people who leave in the winter. Plants can't do that. And so they have to really be aware of what's going on around them and use that information to match their behavior. So they can respond to light. Um, they can measure how many hours of light they get per day. And they use that as a cue for whether it's summer versus winter. Um, they can oh. measure temperature um, to know if it's summer or winter. Um, they can measure the amount of nutrients that are in the soil and use that to adapt their behavior. They can measure humidity. They can measure humidity. Oh, yes. Yes. They can measure how? humidity. So basically plants on, on the leaves, they have these um, little uh structures that are called stomata. And that doesn't matter so much as that these, it looks like two beans and a hole in the middle. And this is where carbon dioxide gets into the plant or oxygen gets out. And those are very good humidity sensors because if it's too humid, they can either open or close those in response to the humidity. Uh, and so they can measure humidity and then adapt accordingly. Yes. So that little two bean things with the hole in the middle, like yes. you'd only be able to see that like under a microscope, right? Absolutely. Yes. Under a microscope. Yeah. And the whole leaves are covered with that. Yeah. So the leaves have those mostly on the bottom surface for most plants, <sighs> um, but they are all over the leaves. Yeah. I cannot handle. I could cry. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm obsessed. Okay. So wait, now this is this like other age. Well, I guess it's not age old, but it feels age old to me. So like ever since I started gardening and being aware of plants, mm -hmm. like in my backyard, since I've had a backyard and been gardening, which is all of like, it was from like August okay. to like December of okay. last year. <laughs> okay. Oh, actually it was like August to February of this mm -hmm. year, actually. Mm -hmm. So, so basically, once the temperatures got cold, I started asking, I don't want to be one of those people. It's like my husband, my husband, but it's true. Like, it, it's oh, like, yeah. that's who was there. So Celebrate I it. Can also just say, <laughs> I can also just say Mark. So anyway, yeah. so I would ask Mark, I was like, are these dead? Like, everything looks dead. And he's like, no, it's just winter. Like, they're just sleeping. Yes. I was like, no, these look dead. They look deader than a doornail. I'm freaking out. Like, are my lantanas going to make it? Because mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with these, like, plants in Texas called lantana. And mm -hmm. they're so pretty. Mm -hmm. And they have all these, like, different shapes and all these different colors. And, like, oh, cool. some of them are ombre. And I just, like, love them so much. Yeah. So I was like, are my lantana going to effing die? And he was like, they're not dead. They're literally just sleeping. And I was like, well, what about these hydrangea? They're just sleeping. What about this? I mean, every day I'm upset. So... They, so that's what he's saying. They knew that's it was what, winter. So what I would say to you is listen to Mark. He understands these plants. And so, yes, absolutely. One of the biggest kind of examples of that that we're all aware of is fall colors, right? And so the mm -hmm. fall colors are actually that the plants have sensed that it's when, uh, fall and that winter is coming. So they are preparing for winter to do exactly what your husband said, to go into a rest period. And so one of the reasons that I love fall, just because the colors are beautiful, but what the plants are actually doing are preparing for winter when they don't have as much ability to make their own sugars because it's so cold. And so they drop all the leaves so that they won't have to support those. And then they can just rest through winter and be prepared to come back in spring. So he's absolutely right. It's a, it's a period of anticipation and then rest. Uh, okay, leads me right into my next question. So, how do you feel? Like, okay, so 
The thing that I got really obsessed with last summer was growing watermelons. Mm -hmm. So at this house that we rented, we were minding our own business. I was like, I didn't expect to love them so much. I just got two little starters at the gardener Mm -hmm. shop. And then before I knew it, they were growing. They were flowering these flowers. Cause like, I guess I didn't realize that like the the stuff that sometimes turns into the fruit, like was a flower originally. I must've like been going through it when you go through like basic plant class in school. Cause like, Mm -hmm. I just didn't remember. Mm -hmm. So then it was going really good. I had a watermelon like this big, like almost the size of my face. Mm -hmm. I was Insta storing it very frequently last year. Then when we like moved into our like forever house, I like moved it and it didn't have as much sun. Mm -hmm. And then like, it just slowly started like a rotting. And then it just like, I picked it up this like one morning and it had this huge like black hole and like my watermelon, like it did not make it. And Mm -hmm. then I realized, Oh my God, this is too much shade here. I've been like watering the shit out of it. Cause it was like August, mm-hmm. and, but it didn't get enough sun. So I was like, I got to like transplant these things. I need to like move. I didn't move them out of like the pot. I just moved them into a different spot mm-hmm. that had a lot more sun exposure. And then Mark was like, we got to cut all these dead leaves off. And I was like, no, like that's like the last bit of leaves that I can see. And like, what it's like, what's going to happen if we cut And he was like, no, like it's got to concentrate. Mm-hmm. I was like, this plant doesn't know to concentrate. And he's like, no, it really does. Like we have to like cut the, and so that is true. Like it, so we pruned the things off. Tell me more. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And so that's one of the things that fascinates me about plants is that they are able to make new tissues throughout their life cycle. And so, you know, once you start to see browning leaves like you did, that's the plant going through some kind of stress generally. And as soon as you remove those, the plant can then concentrate all of the energy that it has left on new tissues or healthy tissues. And so it is important once you start to see that kind of death of tissues to remove that so that the plants can. The concentration in my mind is really the plant making uh, decisions, molecular decisions about where to spend its energy because it ha- there's a certain amount of energy that the plant has. And if it's trying to support dead tissues or dying tissues, as well as new tissues, you're div- diverting energy into two places. And so you really do want to give the plant a chance to use its energy for all of the kind of healthy growing and new production of tissues. So. Okay. So like, whether it's like, like if you have like different types of food that you're growing, like you got some lettuce, you got some you know, like I was saying watermelons, you got some peppers. Like um, I also became very obsessed with jalapenos and like oh, red mm-hmm, chilies because mm-hmm. those had such pretty vibes. <gasps> and also I never knew about okra, but like these flowers are so They're stunning. Really, they are. Yeah. Oh my, and I've always like been a queen who's like really good at making chili. And then like, then when I add, like started adding that, it kind of took it to this whole other level. So mm-hmm. regardless, it's like for a different podcast. <laughs> but so is, if, if I mess up something, cause it did, I didn't get, um, my watermelon, I didn't get jalapenos and I didn't get artichokes and I didn't get, what else didn't I get to adulthood? Cause I just kind of blew past those planting guides and I was like, okay, well, if I miss the window, I'm just going to do it anyway. Cause I was like, maybe it'll work. Yes. That it didn't work in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but are there different plants that will respond differently to like, you know, cutting stuff off or like pruning things like, like, or do other ones like are, are some hardier than others as far as like actually getting to adulthood? Yeah. So part of it is is plants are different in how long it takes them to get to adulthood. And that's why the planting guides are good. Right. Because some of them need a little bit longer just based upon their evolutionary or ecological history, how much time it takes for them to get to. Um, some of them need to go through periods of so some plants you need to uh, plant them early in spring because they actually need a exposure to a few cold nights to get their healthiest mm-hmm. life and others don't. 
And so it really, each plant kind of has its difference um, in that. Sometimes it also matters who you're planting together. Some plants love to really grow well together. Some of them need the same thing. And if you grow them together, they're in competition as opposed to being able to live kind of complementarity um, in the space. How do we find that out? Just like Google it, get a book? Yeah, like, there, there's some good garden guides, but you know, generally a lot of the garden guides will tell you if you have plants that have like really big leaves, you don't want to plant that to plants that don't because they're competing for some, like you can actually produce a, a shaded part of your garden just by who you plant next to each other. And so plants that need full sun and are growing to something that makes these big leaves start to think they're in the shade. And in that case, they don't have a healthy life. And so Google is great. Plant garden guides are great. But really figuring out which plants grow well together and how to where how and where to plant them in your garden is really important. So what about like, you know how we see fossils of like animals? Yes. Is there like fossils of like plants? Yeah. So there are um, two kinds of things that happen. So a lot of times you get fossil impressions of plant leaves because the leaves don't always persevere, but there are some beautiful impressions of the shape and, you know, of leaves, the size of leaves. A lot of what we get in plant fossils are seeds, cones, you know, the hardier parts. There's a lot of beautiful plant uh, fossils of woody plants. So you might've seen some petrified wood or something like that. Those are plant fossils. And so there are usually of the uh, hardier parts of the plant. And then we can see impressions of other things that are like herbaceous, like the leaves. Yes. Do we ever see like when like berries or like apples or like when like, was there ever like fossils of like food where we see like when certain food, like, Cause you said like that some, like based on their like evolutionary, like history, like do we ever see, do we ever see evidence of like evolutionary history of like food yeah, and so like trees and stuff? There's two things that happen. Sometimes you do get fossils of some kinds of the uh, fruits and seeds. Um, but also I, to, um, and this is on based not on my science knowledge, but based on my reading, there's also been some evidence of finding those in some of the, um, like Egyptian tombs and other places, they found some evidence of what kind of plants and foods and other things that they ate. And that's really fascinating to me, just on a personal level, doing reading to to be able to kind of trace back history based on some of the things that are found. And usually if things that are found there, those were some of the important plants and fruits, right? Because they actually got entombed in some of those ways. So, Okay, so I'm going to ask you a very brief pre-question and then we're going to go into the real question do you ever watch british baking show on netflix oh yes yes okay me too i'm obsessed yeah so do, do you remember the season i think it's like season one on like american netflix where nancy wins yes yes nancy so i'm like the president of the nancy burt whistle fan club i'm obsessed <laughs> with her so much i follow the shit out of her on instagram like i love her so much oh she's on and instagram she's, yes okay she has right. a great instagram okay and if you're into like She's really into, like, plan stuff, like, clean, like, like, clean, or, like, green cleaning stuff, like, mm-hmm. not too chemically, mm-hmm. etc. Um, But she does this thing where she mixes, like, eggshells with, like, salt to, like, sprinkle around plants that slugs try to eat. Mm-hmm. So, like, it, isn't that an example of, like, oh, actually, that's an example of a human doing something for a plant because of an animal threat. 
Do any plants like do anything themselves to like tell an animal to go fuck off or like another threat? Oh my goodness. It's so exciting. Plants have a really complicated language. So, and it's, it's, I, I, you, you can get me too excited about this. So I'll tell you two quick things they do. So plants. Don't get quit. <laughs> I, I get too excited like, about this because I found out something super cool about this. But I'll tell you. So the first thing that I know about this is that um, plants, when they are, for example, attacked by insects, produce a gaseous compound, right? That it serves two purposes. That compound goes out and the plants next to it can sense that compound and know that there's some danger in place. And then they can start a defense system so that if insects attack them, there's not that much damage. Plants also, one of my colleagues actually at Michigan State studies this, plants also produce compounds so that, for example, like tomatoes, if hornworms are eating on the tomato leaves, Plants produce a chemical that those hornworms ingest, and it actually disrupts their ability to absorb nutrients from the plant. And so they're not healthy. They don't have healthy lives and they can't really reproduce. So plants have this really defense, cool defense system. But one of the things that you got me so excited about that I read about last year is that plants actually can also do something where, for example, if they're being attacked like by wasp, a parasitic wasp or something, some plants can produce a compound that doesn't affect the wasp. But a predator of the wasp senses this compound. So the plants call in someone else and they say, please come and eat this wasp. This wasp is bothering me. And so then the predator that eats the wasp can sense that the plant's been attacked by this wasp and come in and take care of it. And I just thought that was super cool because plants are, I consider a gangster. They're like, come and take care of this for me because I need to live (laughs) and I can't do it, but you can. So here's the signal that what you like to eat is available. Come have a picnic. It's so genius. But wait, what was the very first thing? Yeah, so when plants are attacked by insects, they make a gas that is kind of an airborne. It also can go through the plant, but it can go through the into the environment. And so basically it signals to other plants in the environment that there are potential damaging insects here and you should prepare um, defenses. So what are their defenses? Like, what can they do yeah, to minimize so damage? One of the things that they do, if you've ever seen a leaf in your house that might have had just not the entire leaf is brown, but there's a little patch where the leaf is brown. Plants will just kill part of the leaf because a lot of the way these insects work in many ways is to, you know how we were talking earlier about the sap that maple trees make? A lot of the way these insects work is that they insert this little stylus right into the phloem and take that sugar. And so if plants mm. can actually kill off a particular cells, those cells die. The insect can't get any sugar from that, but the rest of the leaf can still. So they will actually kill part of themselves to to keep the insects from having access to the sugars. Or as I was saying, they can make these compounds that actually make the insects sick so that they can't thrive. And then um, the, the insects themselves probably die. So like, where is the plant's brain? That like tells it to kill that part of itself. Yeah. So generally the plant doesn't have like a centralized brain in the way we think about it. Plants, each cell or cells working together, um, communicate with each other and start a particular behavior. And it's usually all chemical. It's, you know, they make these chemical signals that coordinate behavior. So, wow. So how do we, how did they learn to do that with each other? Like, yeah, so, how, how do they evolve like that? Yeah, so, I, you know, the thing that's um, 
Plants basically, like many different organisms, have some kind of natural variation in the population. And so the way I like to think about it is if you're looking at humans, we have natural variation in our height, right? Some of us are short, some of us are tall. Uh, plants have natural variation in their ability, for example, to respond to insects. And yet, if you're in an environment that you're constantly being attacked by insects, the ones that have the higher ability to respond to them are the ones that survive, produce seeds, and over time, it's your ability to respond to what's present all the time that determines who survives, makes more offspring, and over time, that ability then is what's carried forward. And that's, I mean, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, and I'm sure my evolutionary biologist friends, when they listen to this, are going to laugh at the way I've explained that, but that's really what evolution is. There's natural variation, there's some selection in terms of what's needed to survive, and over time, those who survive are the ones who have offspring and pass on their genes, which is the ability to, you know, respond to whatever's present. So that's completely fine. They can do whatever they want because the thing with this podcast is, is that some, you know how like they say that newspapers are written for like an eighth grade on average reading level or whatever. I really span from like first grade to like maybe bachelor of college. I don't know if I'm like delusional in like my brain, but like, I feel like we really cover a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I might have like a fourth grade one though, accidentally. What about Venus fly traps? Because they just came to my mind. Are those plants? They, so Venus flytraps are plants. And I think that, you know, they're plants from the definition we started with. They have the ability to conduct photosynthesis and make sugars for themselves. What causes some people to question whether they're plants is because that they do have this ability to trap insects, right? To dissolve those insects and to use the nutrients. But what, what they're doing there is that those plants are using the insects as a source for nutrients such as like nitrogen. Or, or something like that. And so they still have the ability to conduct photosynthesis, but in addition to making your own sugars, you need access to nutrients. Or That's why you get plants fertilizers, right? They need iron and nitrogen and phosphates and other nutrients to support the you know building of their body in addition to using the sugar. So Venus flytraps, some plants are able to get nitrogen from the soil or to make their own nitrogen in collaboration with bacteria, which is another cool thing plants do. Um, but some plants like Venus flytraps have adapted to trap insects and just use their bodies as the source for the nutrients they need instead of getting access to like miracle Girl or something like that. Uh, (laughs) It's like how nature does miracle Girl. Okay, wait, I have another question. Yes. So what about last year? I was growing tomatoes. I had these like white little things, these like little fucking white creepy crawlies and they were spreading and doing it. And so then I just started pruning them crazy one day once I realized and believed that Mark was right that like, it's okay for us to cut things off of the plant so yeah. that it really can concentrate. Because sometimes you just get sad to lose little flowers, though, you know, because it's Absolutely. so pretty. But not once I accepted it, I get it. So, yeah, but what were those little... So, basically, tomatoes are really cool to me because... So, those are... Um, they're basically small insects that you can't really see. And if they were able to persist, they would continue to grow and reproduce. I don't know if you've noticed, when you touch tomato leaves, sometimes they feel a little sticky. Um, and they mm-hmm. feel a little hairy. So tomatoes make these little hairs. Um, they're technically called trichomes and other hairs that are on the leaf. And they're sticky. That's part of their defense. And so a lot of times you see them covered with those white flies because the tomato has actually trapped them a little bit in the hairs. And that's perfect because once they're trapped, if you cut off that leaf, it keeps them from spreading around. But yeah, those are little insects that are trying to get access to the sugars of the plant to support their own kind of life cycle. 
So then I'm taking a hard left into woody plants. Yes. So in my hometown, there's like a lot of like oaks. And then before I was born, though, I remember they like, my mom talks about this like, or no, it was elms. It was like the great Dutch elm disease of Mm. like 1985. And like all these oaks in Quincy died. So like, what are trees, like what are some of the threats that trees face like outside of deforestation. Yeah, so we do see a lot of that, right? In terms of, um, I think a few years ago, there was a, a, a some trees in uh, California that were wiped out by a disease that was spreading through. So often um, any kind, a lot of times those disease, they can be fungal in nature. So we talked about fungi before. There are fungi or bacteria sometimes that infect trees. The trees... Generally, when it wipes out the trees, like your um, mom uh, was talking about with the Dutch elm, it's because the plants don't have the ability to defend. So we were talking about how plants can defend. Oftentimes, plants are capable of defending things that they've seen before, right? And so they have this ability to recognize it the same way we take a vaccine so that our body recognizes something and shuts it down. Plants, usually, if they've had exposure to something, they've evolved the ability to recognize it and shuts it down. Sometimes something comes through like Dutch elm disease that affects a a tree that doesn't have the ability to actually respond to that through defense. And so then it wipes through an entire population. And those can be sometimes fungi, sometimes bacteria. Um, We also find that trees sometimes get affected by introduction of other species. So again, I was saying I grew up in Arkansas and when I was young, um, that there was some endogenous uh, plant coming through the South kudzu, right? What's endogenous mean? I'm sorry. It wasn't endogenous. It was a um, a foreign plant. Natural plants are kind of ones that are there all the time are the local mm. ones that are there. This is, I'm trying to think of what they call these. Um, like a foreign invader plant or something. Right, right. Or is that like the Donald Trump way to say it? I bet there's a better, <laughs> like, cool, like, science way to say uh, it. Invasive species. Invasive species. See, you're helping me. You do have your bachelor's knowledge uh, level of this. So there are <laughs> these invasive species that come in, and kudzu was one that was sweeping the south at the time. And sometimes that can actually grow on trees. Some of these plants, if they're viney, can grow on trees, block trees from having access to what they need. And that can actually cause some of these species to die as well. So as you said, there's kind of the human interventions, there's natural things like forest fires, but then there can be attacks on plants by kind of compounds, organisms, bacteria, fungi, or invasive species that they've not been exposed to before. Is there any examples of like, in your knowledge of like, like the Dutch elm disease, for instance, of like the 80s, and then like, as like, if someone came in and like either replanted those trees or like, how long would it take for that tree to be like, I've seen you before, I'm shutting it down. Like, how long does that take evolutionarily? Could it take like 50 years or it would can, it take yeah, like 500 years? It can take a long time for plants that are biggest trees because it's, you know, how long it takes for plants to um, evolve the ability to adapt to these things is based upon their life cycle, right? And so we know some trees grow for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so sometimes in trees, there it's very long before we see the ability um, to respond to something like that in terms of generationally, right? And that's the thing about plants. Plants have a lot of ability as individuals within their lifetime to respond to things, but that's just kind of a plasticity of response. It's not a change in the genome in terms of your, um, uh, those genes being inherited by offspring and then passed on. But so it could take a really long time for trees. So like, it's not something that like, we're going to be able to see like a tree like learn to deal with Dutch elm disease, like in our lifetime, it takes a minute. 
Yeah, it takes a while. I mean, sometimes um, over the course of your lifetime, you can start to see some of that. So I think about like places like Chernobyl, where there's a massive, you know, destruction of an environment. And then over time, within 30 or 40 years, you can start to see new plants that are coming up there. And so like over the course of our lifetime, that plant may only have two or life cycles, right? In terms of the length of time. But yeah, for something as big a tree, it takes more than one lifetime to see kind of change or shifts in the populations of trees. So trees would have like the longest life cycles. And then like maybe, like what else has really long life cycles that we wouldn't think about? Like a bush? Sometimes bushes do. It depends on how you how you think about it, right? So we talked earlier about things that are produced by seeds and things that produce clonally. If you ask mm. biologists, you can have a clone of something that's been reproducing for hundreds of years because it started from the original plant. And so they would think of that as something that's long lived because it's just, re, you know, it's not kind of going through a complete die off and reemergence. But trees are generally the longest living plants that we kind of think about. Okay, so, so far in our interview, like, what are, like, like, what are you most interested in, in, like, plants? And, like, what's your favorite kind of plant? And when did you know that you wanted to be a plant literal scientist? Yeah, so one of my favorite plants is a mimosa. I don't know if you know what a mimosa is. At brunch, I do. Yeah, (laughs) don't we all? Well, I shouldn't say, Uh I shouldn't speak for other people. Don't we both? So a (laughs) a mimosa is this plant that, Almost looks like a fern to most people, but if you touch its leaf, it slowly starts to close up. So a lot of people have been exposed to this because teachers will bring this into the classroom. And if you touch the tip of the mimosa leaf, it just starts to close up on itself, right? Because it's very sensitive to touch. And in some ways, that's a, we were talking about a protection response from insects. In a lot of ways, that is thought that that's a protection response because if you're landed on by an insect, but you close, it doesn't have access to chew on the tissues as much. So I just love that because it's so, it's a sensitive plant and I like sensitive plants. Um, but it's interesting. I didn't beside, decide to become a plant scientist early. I actually, at five years old, decided to be a lawyer because there was this car that was driving recklessly through the neighborhood and I wanted to sue him. And my parents refused to get me a lawyer. So at that point, I decided I was going to law school to do pro bono work for all the future five-year-olds who needed lawyers, right? So I actually stuck with that. Um, even in middle school, it became pretty clear that I was really good at math and science, but I had said I would be a lawyer for so long that I slowly started to evolve to think I would be a biological patent lawyer. And these are lawyers who write patents about medicines or whatever. And then ultimately, when I was looking to go to law school, it, it just didn't seem as exciting as I wanted it to be. And I decided to work in a lab just to see what it would be like to do the experiments I would be writing patents about. And I fell in love with experimentation first, then took several classes. And when I took a class on plant physiology and realized how cool plants were, I slowly evolved. My mother, however, finds this really funny because my mother has the best green thumb of anyone I know. Like I grew up in a house with hundreds of plants. The yard was the, you know, just the star of the neighborhood. And she said, I tried to introduce you to plants then and you weren't interested. And I said, not at all. But now it's kind of come full circle. So. Yeah. Oh my God, that's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so this other time I was in Japan and I like was walking and I saw this, I was in this forest and I saw all these trees and it was the most pretty thing I've ever seen in my life. It actually made me like cry like a baby because mm. it was just 
it was incredible, but none of the treetops touched each other. And it made like yes. this like gorgeous like design. And then I put it on my Insta stories and people were like, that's crown shyness. That's crown shyness. Yes. Will you tell us what crown shyness is? Yeah, so that is crown shyness. And it's really cool. You can also see it if you're flying, right? If you're flying over a forest, you'll often see these kind of gaps where the trees don't touch each other. So it's so fun that you bring this up because I did talk about that uh, as well. Um, so one, it, for a long time, it was thought that it was just accidental, that like trees got close to each other and they would brush uh, and then they would, the branches would break and that's why they weren't close. But as scientists mm. were studying this, they actually realized that if you had plants that were related, so that like their kin, they actually do that more frequently than plants that are not related. And so what they started to realize is that it may be a way of making space for each other in the environment so that as we get close to each other, we're not competing. And we there's just a kind of you grow close to each other, but not touch where you would actually damage each other. So it seems that it's actually a response where plants are sensing that they're next to each other and growing as close as they can, but not absolutely um, touching each other and causing the harm to each other. That is so interesting. So do we ever see crown shyness in like plants that aren't kin? Yeah. So you can see it in plants that aren't kin as well. Yes. Yeah. Ah, okay. So how can we see plant behavior as a model for human behavior? So I'll start by saying, I think we need to more broadly look at uh, organisms other than ourselves in general for inspiration about how to live on the planet, right? I think sometimes we can just become so focused on ourselves that we don't recognize there or the other organisms that have been on this planet for a long time, they're doing quite well, which means they understand something about how to exist on the planet. And so I think generally we should learn more from other organisms. I think plants are particularly fascinating because we depend upon them absolutely for our existence. If plants went away, we would not exist because we breathe the oxygen. Um, and yet we don't spend a lot of time understanding about them. And I believe in one of my life principles is reciprocity. It's how do you live together with other organisms and recognize how you're giving to each other. And because my life is absolutely dependent on plants, I think it's important to understand more about them and then to ask, what can I learn not just about them, but what can I learn from them about being? So I feel like that's this really, I remember learning about that in grade school and I feel like it's this nebulous idea and I'm so happy that you brought that up. It's like we would not exist because plants create oxygen. Mm -hmm. So we spent a lot of time talking about like how plants create sugar for themselves, but how do plants interact with like the air that we breathe and really interact with like the oxygen, carbon, like all of that thing in the world in general? Like it's it's really not some like esoteric idea that's like, you know, that doesn't affect you. Like it literally keeps us all alive, Absol right? It absolutely keeps us alive. And I think, you know, I try to think of it full circle. So I think it was late in 2018, I was traveling with my sister and son and they wanted to visit... Um, a formal plantation in South Carolina. And I really didn't want to go. That's a long story, but we travel together and I do something they want to do. We do something they, you know, but when I got there, I saw this 600 year old tree, which was completely fascinating. And I started to think about the fact that certainly we depend upon its oxygen, but the carbon dioxide that we breathe also becomes a part of the tree and it uses the carbon dioxide to make sugar. The sugar then gets put into wood. And so I started to think about the fact that this tree actually held the captured breath, right, of our formerly enslaved ancestors. And when you think about that, every breath that you take is potentially contributing to the life of a plant. 
as you're depending upon that plant. And so, you know, even the way that we live, whether we have pollutants in the soil or whatever, plants can adapt to that, but it, adapt, it, it, it does impact their life. And I think a lot of people like you who have started to garden start to have a greater appreciation for what it takes to go into a plant being successful. And so I asked then, how do you use that and knowledge that you now have to think about how your life is affecting all of the plants around you, which are critical to everything that we do, right? Not just the sugars, the fruits we eat, the vegetables, the wood we use to build our houses. Plants really are central to everything um, that's a part of our life. And I think as a, as a true form of reciprocity, understanding how that happens and then asking what we can learn from it is really important. Also, my particular bend about learning from plants is also rooted in a lot that I've learned from indigenous people. So one of the first books I read about plants life in this kind of capacity was from Robin Wall Kimmerer, who wrote um, Braiding Sweetgrass. And I was really inspired by the ways in which indigenous people and other people around the world think about coexisting with plants and learning from them. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, Okay, so how can we be more conscientious and like better stewards of our community and like take better care of plants like in the world and in our home, like all over the place? Yes. So I think, you know, I would start with the thing that's inspired me about humans with plants. And then I will answer your question. Um, But I've been really inspired by the way that humans, if they have a plant in their home, in their garden, they expect that the plant should grow. Right. And if there's anything going wrong with the plant, like you saw these little white things on your tomato or you saw the browning leaves, they really start to ask questions about what can I do um, to help support this plant, be healthier and happy. And that's the that's the most humans response. So humans really, to me, already have this awe inspiring relationship with plants. I just think we don't stop and intentionally reflect on you know, what we can learn from more intentional observation and deep reflection on those particular processes. I think when you really dig into it, most humans, as I said, expect that plants can grow. And if there's a problem with the plant, they don't stop and think, well, let me teach this plant how to be a better plant. They, they really say, how can I figure out what this plant needs? And so I think just taking some time, as you did when you were a child, to stop and wander over the annual wildflowers. You know, when, if you live in an area where the trees do lose their leaves in the fall, stop and asking what that means. But also in spring, taking a walk. Every, Every spring, I take the same walk, the first few weeks of spring, just to watch the plants come back, right? To watch the leaves emerge. And so I think just taking some time to not just say, well, I have these plants in my house because I want it to be beautiful, but to reflect on how's that, what are you doing? How are you interacting with them and what that means about who they are as organisms and who you are? Ah, okay, yes. So this year, because I like cannot wait for spring and I can't wait to plant again and like try like my yes. next batch. And I moved to Texas and it's so beautiful. And like, I like, I'm like, I live in the woods and like I walk in the woods. So like, I was like very eagerly awaiting buds for the first yes. time. It's like, I know what you're talking about. I never have like been so excited to see buds on the tree. Then of course there was a massive, huge freeze of all freezes. Yes. Like, like, I mean, just like, Yes, the <laughs> yes. I mean, just my like my lettuces and and people went through it way worse than I did. So yes. you know, but but my heart after it was done breaking for all like the human mm-hmm. suffering, my lettuces were just like yes. literally decomposed under their blankets. Like I know they're gone. There's like all these other things that I just like. I'm like, oh, oh. Like, yes. I, just, I don't know. Like I don't know if I'm gonna have to like dig it out. But this is. 
Oh my God. And if you don't have good news for me, I don't want to put pressure on you because you can't change nature and it's not your fault. But I do have a question that just came back to me that I do need to ask. Yes. I'm just going to like rip this bandaid off, but I'm just going to like, uh, okay. So in January, I am, I literally hear my voice like shaking about it. Cause like, I don't want them to be gone, oh. but I bought this like baby lemon tree and this baby orange tree. And they're like in pots there. Oh my God, your reaction already <laughs> looks really upset. Fuck. <laughs> um, but they weren't, but there's a few things. <laughs> I would just like to add. Yes. Okay, so just hear me out. Okay, okay just hear me out. Okay. Hear me out, Doc. I'm okay. <laughs> they were in pots. Yes. Kind of close to the house. Mm-hmm. They were too heavy to, like, get into the house because, like, it could have shattered and there was, like, steps and stuff. So, like, they were in pots with soil, not in the cold-ass ground. But they did... They didn't snap, but, like, they went from being upright to, like, eh. But I did cover them in, like, this mm-hmm. these blankets, like, for trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I first took them out, once it got warm again, it was com- like still completely like bent over. Okay. But since they have gone upright again, oh, okay. but all the leaves are clearly dead. Yes. Like the, the leaves are definitely dead. But if citrus trees leaves die, like, can they still grow up to be like adult trees? Yes, they can. And so I'm glad I let you get through the whole story because I was feeling sorry for you and sad. But the fact that they were bent and came back up means that they're still alive. That's a response, right? Where they can, they <laughs> they were able to detect. And the beautiful thing about plants, we haven't talked about this, the leaves are needed for photosynthesis, but plants have, um, they have a, a specialized part called a meristem. And that's almost like where stem cells are. So you've probably heard of stem cells in human biology. And everything needed to recover is in that little stem cell. And so as long as they're still alive, they may have a, a year that they look pretty, you know, like the... Charlie Brown Christmas tree, but some leaves mm. will come back and they can grow. They can still continue to grow so that they should be OK. That That's a good sign that they were able to recover. And so th- those meristem should produce some new leaves once it gets to the right. Yes. You'll have, okay, to, you'll have to post a picture on Instagram or something because oh, I'll I be worried about to these trees. I got to follow you. I got to follow you. And, then, and, yeah, and I will. I'll, I'll DM you all the time. Yeah, because uh, I, I, I really okay, need we, to know now. I'm invested in the tree. No, I will. Tree. I'll okay. tell you everything. <laughs> okay. I will. Now, okay, wait. So then I also, we have these like two big bushes that these fucking deer. At first, oh, I loved dear. the deer. I was obsessed no. with the deer. I used to love deer. I used to think it was so fun till I started really planting yes. stuff. Now I'm devastated. So I did like build like a mini fence that looks like Definitely looks like someone's first time building a fence because, like the like I, I mean, it was like I just was like, get away from my things. Yeah, but they really like tore into like I mean, there's like four surviving leaves oh, on no. two different bushes. Are those gonna die? No, they they should. Yeah, but that happened before the freeze. That happened like three weeks before the freeze. They got eaten bare. Then this massive freeze, and like two weeks before the freeze, these like lantanics. I was like, you know, I told you I was obsessed with lantana. Do you know what those are? I don't. I I don't know if I do. I have to look that up. They're these like big bushy, like Texas kind of like shrubby bushes, and some are pink, some are yellow, some are red, some are ombre, some are orange. Yeah, when you said ombre, I'm like, I have to look this up. I don't know if I know that. Yeah. So, but I pruned the shit out of them because I read that you could. Yeah. Like some of them just like started looking really straggly. And once Mark, like once I was like assured that like, oh my God, like actually cutting them so they can focus is actually kind of amazing because mm-hmm. it makes them like thicker and like, yes. you know, bushier at the base and stuff. So then I just went ham with these tree shrubs. It actually looked like I had like a divine secrets of the Yaya, like mother, yeah. like sisterhood. Like, yeah. I mean, like my arms were all cut up because like, <laughs> the, like the, the gardener's gloves didn't go yeah. high enough. And I was just like, ah! just cutting these bushes up 
But then there's a huge freeze. So are they going to die because I did it right before the huge freeze? No, they should be okay. And even the ones that the deers have eaten, you should they should come back. Um, what's what's really neat about that? So you were talking about how when you prune them, they become bushier. We, biologists think that that's actually like a response, so that when in nature deer are like it's similar to pruning the plants can grow bushier and the next time the deer comes back it's harder for it to get access to it so it's thought that building up the bushiness is a defense mechanism to make it harder for animals to get access to all of the tissues so they actually should survive but i'm I'm serious i literally have to follow you on instagram because now i'm going to be worried about all of your plants and they have to be happy and healthy we made new friends. <laughs> yes. I'm really excited because when my watermelon died last year, like people were really invested in it on my Insta stories because yes. I talked about it a lot. And then this this one lady made me feel so much better because she was like, just so you know, it literally took me three whole seasons to get my watermelon like to adulthood. Mm. So she was like, it does take. Like, yes. And then that made me, I, I just felt like, yeah, I have such a visceral attachment to my plants yes. now. Like I like in the same way that I do like my cats, mm-hmm. like, I, like, my soul like bleeds for my plants when they don't make yes. it or when something happens. Yeah. And like my artichokes, like, <clears throat> no, like my artichokes, like they like, no, like dead, like dead as doornails. See, I've never grown those. I've never tried those. Yeah. They're so cool looking. I think they, I think they do kind of prefer like, z- like, z- like zone eight, mm-hmm. zone seven mm-hmm. moments. Like at least from what I read on Google, but who knows what that's like? Who knows? So, okay, wait. So, um, oh, mm-hmm. is it true that trees' roots go as deep and as wide as, like, the top of them outside of the ground do? At least, yeah. For a lot of trees, <sighs> they do. The other thing that's really fascinating to me is how... Um, so we talked earlier about fungi, probably 80 to 90% of trees actually have fungi associated with their root because it expands their ability to take up water. And also the fungi make phosphate or other compounds that the plant can use. But what's really cool is that one fungi may connect two trees. So the two trees may actually be communicating underground where their roots are connected through that kind of fungi and other, it's really cool things going on underground. What about cactuses? How do they do stuff that's different than like all the plants? What are they woody fruit or seed or whatever? What yeah, kind of so are they? Cac, uh, you know, cacti are they do have a woody structure under them. I don't know if you've ever some of them have a very dense woody structure, and many of them are flowering. So you know, you've had, probably had cactus flowers at some point in in at a restaurant. Um, what's really the most cool thing about cacti from my limited you know um, exploration of them? I went through a period of being fascinated with them just kind of um, not as a biologist, but as a as a human interested in plants, is that they're adapted to store water, right? That's why they their tissues are so thick. That's why they're different. Their root systems are actually quite different from other plants in some regard, but they are adapted to when water is available, to take up as much of it as possible, and then to be able to store it because they may have periods where external water is nowhere around um, for long periods of time. Okay, so then you'd mentioned before that when you were like falling in love with like microbiology and like molecular biology Mm -hmm. and you like were doing all the experiments in the patent place, like what, because I feel like it took me this entire time just to like get like a basic understanding of like just welcome. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? Like, I I mean, because I know you're like a professor, but like what like experiments do you do? Like what like cool things can you tell us now that we all kind of know something? Yeah, so our our primary interest is how light cues are used by plants to tell them what time of year it is, whether they should be flowering, what kinds of behaviors they should do. So we actually study 
There are proteins in plants that when light, certain light is available, these plants start an entire communication cascade. So I think about it as the telephone game, you know, where we used to have information and then share it. But plants do it with much more trust and fidelity because the information has to get carried. And so we study how that gets started in response to light cues and what that means in terms of plants knowing whether it's summer or spring or fall and what they should be doing, whether they should be in spring making flowers and summer making fruits, or if the light cues are telling them that it's winter time and they should be preparing for rest over winter. So we, stu- that's part of what we study in, you know, in my own group. Because you're at Michigan State University, which is like an incredible school. And now comma, that's giving me major, not Michigan State, but what you're studying global warming vibes because doesn't like global warming have like a negative impact obviously on plants like that's a huge threat right yeah so you know climate change and, and global warming is really a threat to plants because it often is changing their environment faster than they can adapt to it so we talked about how if change happens slow enough the plants that have that variability can persist and make offspring climate change and global warming are happening so fast that sometimes plants um, because almost go to extinction before they're able to adapt to the changes. And that's one of the big problems. Plants also are sometimes working overtime because the carbon dioxide levels are changing. And that means that how they respond, their behaviors also have to adapt to that because they're so dependent on carbon dioxide. So it is a huge problem in terms of thinking about whether we are driving plants into extinction or if plants are changing in ways that are going to have kind of reverberating effects back on us in terms of their our, our um, dependence upon them as well. So because there was just this like gigantic freeze and all in Texas and all these like trees like cracked in half and all these branches fell off and all the cute little like fat buds were like starting to come up on all the trees. Like I could see all of them like these cute little baby circles. And yes. I never really, well, I kind of noticed it in my subconscious before, but like I never was like excited for them to mm-hmm. like, unfurl so are they gonna like freeze off and come back or like what happens when the plants get confused yes yeah, so because some, of the weather yeah some of them um we actually i've seen we've seen this several times when this happens sometimes they get confused and they reset right they reset to winter and so then spring will be delayed and often they won't have a kind of a full season and so if you ever look at the tree rings, that's why, you know, sometimes they're thin and sometimes they're thick because their season is shorter and they don't have as much time to make the kind of a ring in the tree. What we saw here was interesting. I think it was la- a couple of years ago, we had a similar issue here and the trees started to go, the leaves started to be red again. And so my neighbor thought they were going into fall preemptively. So sometimes they're confused. It's almost like, you know, jet lag in a way where things have been reset and they're trying to respond, but they're off season. And so it really does affect kind of that particular season. They usually persist. Even some of the trees that crack, we have some trees on campus that were hit by lightning and it's just half of a tree now, right? But it still makes leaves on that one half. And so these plants are really kind of adaptable and many of them will survive. Some of them may not, but a lot of them will be able to survive even if they have an off season. So, if trees ever get like a disease, is there ever any like human intervention that you can like, can you give a tree like medicine or a plant like medicine that's like not cutting it off? Yeah. Or, like so, cutting the sick part off? Yeah. A lot of, you know, there are a lot of biologists who kind of study that whether a lot of times it starts with looking at what trees would normally do when they were sick and use it, trying to, you know, come up with compounds that mimic that. Um, sometimes what they do is often as if they see trees getting sick and they know there's another plant, let's say it's a different plant that would be able to respond to Dutch elm disease to try to use compounds that that organism would use to see if you can induce a response. And so there are lots of different ways to try to um, use uh, kind of biological interventions to help plants respond to disease. 
other than pesticides and those kinds of things, you know? Yeah. So then back to what you study. So what is, um, what are like some of like the interesting things that you guys have like found lately? So it's like the fungus sometimes like connects the trees and the plants and they talk to each other through like fungus connections under the ground. Yeah. So we, we don't study fungus connections, but we do, we do study um, part of what we study is related to the crown shyness that we were talking about. So the, <laughs> the proteins that we study that perceive light are involved in kin plants setting up crown spacing. So, you know, they, some of those protons, the proteins are involved in those kinds of things. And also um, a lot of what we study has some implications for agriculture in that, um, the light cues are directly linked to when and where plants flower and produce f- fruit or how long they make green and healthy leaves. So some of the things we study have had implications for lettuce um, agriculture because, you know, you want the plants to keep making green and healthy leaves or for other types of uh, fruit and vegetable bearing plants. Ah, OK. So now what did we like? What would you just be like as a literal professor of molecular biology and microbiology and molecular (laughs) genetics? um, What would you just be remiss if you didn't share with us after this interview like that I should have asked or like that you really want people to know? You know, I think the, the one thing that I always try to impress on people is that a lot of times we enter into our curiosity about things, plants or trees. Um, trying to make them relevant based on how similar they are to humans. And I think these organisms are fascinating in and for themselves. And I, you know, I, this, I, I love the name of your podcast, Getting Curious. I wish we would just be more curious about why organisms are the way they are, not because they have any implications on our lives directly, but because they're cool and worthy of kind of admiration in and of themselves. Ah, yours. You know what I think about that? I mean, I wish that too. I think I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think that it's like comparison is the thief of all joy. Yes, yes, yes. And then at the same time, it's like as humans, we just have this need to like, it's like a knee-jerk reaction. And I struggle with it too, to like want to compare things to myself. I mm-hmm. want to like try to categorize something. Like, mm-hmm. And so I think that's like a frustrating, weird thing. And I, and well, not weird thing, just like a human thing. I think it's important to like notice it when it's in action. And I just think you couldn't, have hit the nail on the head any harder. And I am so grateful that I've had this moment in my life to, you know, think that, or to even just notice how amazing plants in nature are. But it does make me think about like how, when I was doing hair full time, like prior to like the success of like Queer Eye and like other things that Mm -hmm. I've been able to do, it's like when I was struggling so hard, like with addiction and just like other things, it's like, I didn't have noticed a a chance to to stop and smell the roses, so to speak. Yes. And I think that, I think one thing that I've taken or just noticed is it's like this nature and like the wonder of nature yes. is always there for us to notice, even if you don't think that, you know, it's there for you. It is there for you. Absolutely. It's just so fascinating. Absolutely. Um, so um, uh, Dr. Barana Montgomery, thank you so much for coming on and for talking to us. I thank you so much. And I had so much fun. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Michigan State University professor Baronda Montgomery. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thanks so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and please show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN for more Getting Curious content, more information on past guests and what they're up to now, and more news stories that we're watching. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Our editor is Andrew Carson, and our transcriptionist is Alita Vunsha. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Emily Bosick. <laughs>